On this edition of Magic Pod Squad, we have a terrific sit-down conversation with former Magic head coach, current television analyst for the Orlando Magic on Fox Sports Florida, Brian Hill. Brian Hill was the first head coach to take the Orlando Magic to an NBA Finals in 1995. We're going to sit down with him and revisit his entire coaching journey starting in high school, going through the college ranks before getting his big break in the NBA in 1986 with the Atlanta Hawks. What it takes to be an NBA head coach, his run in 1995 to the NBA Finals against the Houston Rockets uh, at the helm for the Orlando Magic, what it's like coaching Shaquille O'Neal, and then his journey after Orlando, ultimately coming back to City Beautiful as an analyst on Fox Sports Florida. Lots to get into, lots of stories with former Magic head coach Brian Hill on this edition of Magic Pod Squad. This is Aaron Gordon of the Orlando Magic. This is Evan Fournier. This is Jonathan Isaac. This is Mo Bamba. Check out what's new with the Orlando Magic Pod Squad. The host of characters give you a behind-the-scenes look at Magic basketball. The Magic Pod Squad has you covered. Subscribe and rate on iTunes and the Google Play Store today. I'm really looking forward to this one. Of all the guests we had, we're really going to have some fun here catching up with Brian Hill and... Brian, I got to ask you, how many podcasts have you done? I know you I know you you probably get online and try to find as many <laughs> as you can. But have you done many podcasts? Are you are you familiar with the podcast world? I think this is my uh, baptism as far as yeah. podcasts goes. Uh, mine too. <laughs> mine too. I've never I've never been on one. Well, that's good. Well, we're looking forward to it. Um I, I guess, you know, as you think about uh you know, kid growing up where you grew up in New Jersey would love to know the motivation. You know, ultimately wanting to be a, a head coach. Well, when did you know you this was a career path that that you wanted to get into? And uh, you know, kind of some of your early mentors, maybe as you kind of started down that path. Well, I think as far as when did I realize I wanted to be a, a coach, I, I would answer that probably about uh, probably about my sophomore year of high school. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, the biggest inspiration in my life was my older brother Fred. Uh, who was, when I was growing up, was a head football and head baseball coach at at the high school, Clifford Scott High School in East Orange, a town we grew up in. And there were 13 years separating us in age, so he was almost like a father-brother figure and a mentor at the same time. Uh, But also growing up in East Orange, they had a phenomenal recreation program, and a lot of the... uh, a lot of the area high school coaches, whether they were baseball coaches, basketball, football coaches, uh, held jobs in the summertime that were called supervisors at um, the local playgrounds in the city. And there were eight playgrounds. And each playground consisted of two or three baseball diamonds, five or six basketball courts, tennis courts, uh, gymnastics equipment, everything you could think of really and um, I had a lot of coaches coming up in the city in uh, in baseball and in basketball in particular that were high school coaches that were running these playground programs and actually one or two of them were even uh, assistant coaches in college at the time so I always felt like as a young kid I got an awful lot of very good instruction in yeah. in all the sports throughout the seasons and uh, <clears throat> and then uh, going on to high school I had the good fortune to 
have good coaches there. Uh, Richie Adubato, who we know is my junior varsity basketball coach, and I uh, had a varsity basketball coach, Bill Hogan, who was an outstanding coach. And uh, I always talked with my older brother about, you know, coaching and uh, methods and, you know, handling players and things of that nature. And so I kind of knew when I was pretty young that uh, I wanted to coach. The question was, did I want to be a baseball coach or did I want to be a basketball coach? Uh, because I was a better baseball player than I was a basketball player. And uh, ultimately, that gave way to me just concentrating on basketball and, and uh, deciding that that's what I wanted to do. So when I went away to college, it was with the idea of being a physical education teacher and a, and a high school basketball coach. And uh, fortunately, I made it through college in four years <laughs> and uh, got my degree and uh, came back and started teaching and coaching in high school. You played college sports, right? I did. I played four years of college basketball. Out in Kansas? Nebraska. Nebraska. Kennedy right. College in Nebraska. And that's yeah, where you met uh, your longtime wife, Kay, who was a tremendous athlete as well. That's huh? where I met Kay. Uh, she was uh, a year behind me in school, but uh, uh, she was a better athlete than I was. <coughs> at, that, uh, at that time, she came out of the state of Iowa which was very prominent for girls' athletics. This was way before Title IX. Uh, but she played high school basketball and track, and when she came to college, she, she held five different state records in track in, uh, wow. in Iowa. And uh, uh, trust me, I've heard about it for the, last 50, <laughs> for the last 50 years. I've heard about how many halls of fame she's in and <laughs> how great her records were. <laughs> How'd and rightfully at, so. How'd you end and up? And rightfully at, so. At that college, John F. John F. Kennedy College. How'd you end up there? Was it to play? Was it simply to play? Specifically to play there, or did what? That's how you? it ended up. I was going to go to uh, Fairleigh Dickinson University as a walk-on. You you all probably remember a coach at Seton Hall, who's now CBS uh, analyst, Bill Raftery. Sure. Uh, Bill Raftery was the coach at Fairleigh Dickinson University uh, in New Jersey. And I didn't have any type of scholarship, but he had talked to me about coming on as a walk-on. And it's a long story, but I filled in, I filled in as a substitute in a summer all-star game. Uh, this, was, uh, this was right after uh, graduation in June. And uh, I just was a last-second call in. Somebody else was hurt, and... Uh, Happened to play halfway decent, I guess, and there was a, uh, a recruiter there from uh, Kennedy College in Nebraska, and uh, he asked me if I had made a decision, and I told him what I was going to do as far as going to school, and he said, well, he said, I can give you a tuition scholarship if you'd be interested in, in coming out to Nebraska. And, and at the time, all I wanted to do was play basketball. Yeah, sure. And I, at the time, I also thought, you know, it might be nice to, to experience a different part of the country and see what it's like. And, uh, you know, I lived and grown up in New Jersey all my life. And uh, I actually, it was, it's kind of ironic, after I graduated, I couldn't get a job in, in uh, Nebraska or Iowa. And I went to like five or six job interviews, and I probably would have stayed out there had I gotten a high school job. But... Uh, as it turned out, I came home, and I was home about 24 hours, and I had two or three job offers at different high schools, and um, that's 
that's how it all started. You started in high school, but then uh, you. what was your first college coaching job? My first job, I was still a teacher at Clifford Scott High School in East Orange, where I had coached the JV team for two years, and then uh, was offered a job as the freshman coach and assistant varsity coach at Montclair State College in New Jersey. And I was there two years as the freshman coach and uh, then was offered a job as a full-time assistant at Lehigh University uh, and the only assistant uh, where I also coached a junior varsity team. They had junior varsity basketball at that time in, in college and, uh, and then was the assistant to the varsity coach. Brian, you mentioned Richie Adubato, Bill Raftery. There's a great like lineage of coaches that have come out of that East Jersey area. Talk about some of those stories about some of those coaches and how it just seemed like a pipeline that's led to ultimately to the NBA. Yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, you know, obviously, I didn't, I didn't know. Uh, I knew Richie because Richie grew up in uh, my hometown and was two years behind my brother in in school. Uh, so I knew Richie, but once, uh, once. I got out of college and then was teaching and coaching. Uh, basketball clinics were very, very big. Coaching clinics were very big throughout the New York, New Jersey, Philadelphia area. And it seemed like almost every month or two months you were going to a coaching clinic somewhere in the area where there were generally anywhere from 100 to two or 300 coaches and there were big-time college coaches that were coming in and giving lectures and, and demonstrations. And uh, so a lot of the, uh, you know, New Jersey, as you know, very densely populated, a lot of high schools in a very concentrated area of the state. So you got to know a lot of coaches through that and through also competing against coaches. But uh, I think the guy that probably really kind of started the whole movement of of going into college coaching was Hubie Brown. Uh, Hubie was a high school coach in Fairlawn, New Jersey. And then he went and became an assistant at, uh, at William and Mary and then later at Duke. Uh, and then uh, was never a head coach in college until he went into the NBA. And uh, uh, it was in the NBA that he got his first head coaching job other than a high school level. But Hubie kind of brought uh, uh, a lot of other people. Mike Fratello, a well-known NBA coach and a very good friend of mine. Um, Brendan Sir, who played for Hubie at Fairlawn High School, who was with the Magic for, uh, for a little while as an assistant coach under Chuck Daly and is now coaching at Stetson University. Uh, everybody knows Dick Vitale. Dick Vitale was a local high school coach at the time when I first started. Uh, and then went on to bigger and better things. Um, there were just a, a lot of uh, a lot of coaches that started uh, forming friendships and going around and working at summer basketball camps together. Uh, well, five star I, camps were big. Five star camps were big, and then we also uh, we also went to uh, like I can remember one summer, Mike Fratello, myself, and Brendan Sir getting in a car. We went down and worked at uh, the University of North Carolina's camp under Dean Smith. We went to Duke and worked at the Duke camp under Bucky Waters. Uh, you know, we worked uh, up at the University of Rhode Island basketball camp. 
uh, Niagara basketball camp. That was just the way uh, you were trying to learn, number one, from a lot of these different coaches. But you were also, in a way, you were networking, and you wanted – you were giving – these coaches an opportunity to see you work and and at that time basketball camps weren't roll out the ball and just look after look after the kids there was a lot of teaching that was going on especially at places like five star and and uh, uh, some of the other camps at that time and uh, college coaches would you know the, the ones that were running the camp they'd be standing there watching you work your stations in the morning your teaching coach your teams everything uh, and uh, a lot of that led to a lot of jobs for a lot of the guys that were working camps at that time. Steve Clifford met uh, Jeff Van Gundy at Jim Beheim's Syracuse basketball mm-hmm. camp in a, in, a, in a summer camp. Yeah, that's, that's the way it that's was. That's the way it worked. Does yeah. it still happen now, though? I don't hear that as much today. Is, is it, are things just different? today because you, you know talking to you guys but we've heard all the a lot of the stories from like mm-hmm. richie or when you run into mike fratello and it's just amazing how ev- all of you guys know each other and it's like you're you've gone through all these things together that does that happen today i don't know if it happens today it's a good question i'm not really sure to be honest with you i i uh, I, I don't i know most of the college coaches still run their their camps today and Jeff you would probably have a better idea Yeah, that most of the college coaches not a lot of people are doing you know like when I was a kid and like what you're talking when you went down to North Carolina to work um, you'd go for the week right and right you'd, full you'd week have full week and there'd be stations and things mm-hmm. like that they don't really do that as much anymore the money is in team camps so people will bring their team and then it's set up and it's tournament you know play three games a day and um, you know, there are a few that you find that maybe four or five days where you can do um, stations and things like that. But you just you just don't see it as you know, I when I was coaching high school, I was looking for stuff like that for my team. And I never could find it, especially in the area. Everything was, you know, you try to get to a college somewhere um, and you would network with high school coaches and why do you why do you think that's changed though like what 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 makes that shift like why would it go from being the way it was back when you guys were doing it my guess would be one big answer aau basketball yeah. yeah you just get you just don't just, they, they just don't in, you know families don't invest in that now they're they're all you know, part of in the aau aau programs yeah. and things like that think yeah. about the instruction those kids back then were oh, yeah. sure. <laughs> from these coaches and i've seen all right the pictures too have like you, these have pictures you ever watched incredible. some of those old five-star yes. videos yes. and everything they're amazing QB and they're Brown all there out there yes and those kids are like just Can you, they can't, you know i mean it's crazy yeah, and all the colleges, you know, even when I was a, a high school coach in New Jersey, you know, Uppsala College in East Orange uh, ran a camp, Rutgers ran a camp, Seton Hall ran a camp. So we worked at all the local camps also, and they were all the same thing, week long and, you know, stations and competition and and usually pretty good players uh, because, as I mentioned, that you know, that area was – was so concentrated with a number of high schools in that area that, you know, you had uh, kids from East Orange and Newark, and then you had suburban kids that were going to the camp, and uh, there, was, there was a lot of talent there. So you got an opportunity to, you know, to work with some pretty decent players. Brian, you get the head job at, at Lehigh. I know you think so fondly of your time there at Lehigh. It was still then you didn't think you'd be in the NBA. It's amazing. You got into this profession 
with the end goal not being the NBA, right? You just you were going to be fine being a college coach. When, when did that <laughs> transition change? Was it there? Just take us through that. I take it back a step. I my ambition was to be a high school high coach. high school coach. There you go. Uh, right. I never even thought of coaching in college until all of a sudden uh, when I was uh, coaching in high school. Um, and again, I was just the junior varsity coach and assisted with the varsity. But we had a couple kids at our high school that were being recruited by college coaches, and you, you got to meet them. And uh, you know they would talk with you. Obviously, they wanted to influence you to influence their player. Sure. But um, at the same time, they would they would come to games, and uh, sometimes they were there for maybe half the junior varsity game, whatever, which was always, you know, right before the varsity game. Uh, so you got to get to know some of the local college coaches, and it was Montclair State was only about 15 minutes away from where I was teaching, and it was the head coach there, a fellow by the name of Ollie Gelston, that said, you know, did you ever think of coaching in college? And I was like, not really, you know, but uh, he said, well, he said, I'm going to have a freshman coaching job open up at the uh, at the end of this school year you know if you're if you're interested you know let me know keep in contact and long story short I ended up taking that job and coaching a freshman team there for two years uh, but I was still teaching at the high school so when the Lehigh opportunity came along that was full-time basketball which I thought now I'm I've died and gone to heaven. You know, I don't, <laughs> don't have, have to, to teach a class. I don't, I don't have to teach a class anymore. What, what class did you teach in high school? I taught phys ed, uh, physical education, and driver education, both. And uh, trust me, teaching driver <laughs> education in the inner city is an experience. <laughs> That's funny because my basketball coach was my driver's ed teacher too. I think now that, that was I think back, right? that, that was the yeah. official job of a basketball, basketball coach was, was driver's ed as well. Ed. Yeah, my coach was yeah. a driver's That's ed teacher. That's funny. <laughs> my basketball coach worked at Wegmans. <laughs> Came over and filled in for basketball games. But that's neat. That's so that was yeah, and then I never, I never thought of the NBA until, uh, as I mentioned, Mike Fratello, who was a good friend of mine. Uh, I was at Lehigh. He was at Villanova. And then he uh, was hired by Hubie Brown to be an assistant coach with the Atlanta Hawks. And then uh, I started going down and watching their training camps every year with my, my staff at Lehigh. Uh, and, w and we went around uh, uh, watched the Knicks training camps. We watched several uh, Philadelphia 76ers. We went and watched training camps or practices for a one- or two-day period before basketball season started. And uh, so then you started make, meeting some people in, in, you know, on NBA staffs. And uh, I, I happened to be – I left Lehigh after nine years and went to Penn State University and Mike Fratello and I had always remained good friends. And one day I just got a call from Mike and uh, he said, uh, he said, I have an assistance position open. Would you be interested? And I went down to Atlanta for two days and we talked about it and uh, ended up taking the job. And ironically, the reason that job was open was because Ron Rothstein, who was uh, Miami, uh, Miami Heat coach and who I had known from working basketball camps and everything ron was leaving and going to the detroit pistons to work for chuck daly and i was going to come in and replace ron on on mike staff what is it about the jersey coaches that are so colorful 
Vital, <laughs> Arabano. Um, I think it's only the Italian guys. (laughs) No, but seriously, think about the personality. Those are big personalities. What is it about that region and the people in that area of the country that that seems to churn out colorful people? I don't know if I have an answer for that, uh, David. I think think one thing is you're exposed to a lot of different things, you know, when you're growing up in in a heavily populated area like that. A lot of different personalities, a lot of different uh, ethnicities, um, and uh, you know, obviously there's, you know, there's colorful, and then there's like vital colorful, you know, which is a whole different, <laughs> a whole different level of of uh, colorful. But uh, I guess that would be the only way I would explain it. Would just be you know all the different, uh, all the different things you're exposed to and. And, uh, different it's because the New York area is the best, David. Okay. We already there know this. It's our, it's a known fact that the New <laughs> York area is Georgia's the best. A, the, what, Staten Island? Island. Staten Island. Staten Island. That's a, yeah, it's yeah, the best. That there's only one tri-state area. It's up there. <laughs> I don't know what everybody else is talking it, it, about. It wasn't great for, for this guy. <laughs> I spent three years in Jersey. It wasn't the best years of my I life. That's all I know. A kid from the South just didn't work out very well. But you can't, that's a pretty big break to get in Atlanta, a very good Hawks team. You think about oh, the, yeah. the people you had on that team and that transition, your, your first taste of the NBA had been a pretty good one. It was it was great. I mean, we were we were very good. Uh, you know, Doc Rivers, uh, Randy Whitman, Dominique Wilkins, uh, Kevin Willis, uh, Tree Rollins, um, Antoine Carr, Antoine Carr. Even our our second unit: Spud Webb, John Battle, uh, Antoine Carr, Cliff Levingston, John Concac. That was our second team. Wow. Yeah, it was a good team. That team could. It was a good team. Those five guys would win a lot of games. Uh, as starters on an NBA team. I think that first year we won f- uh, 50 games and then uh, followed it up. I think every year was a 50-win season. I was there four years. Every year was a 50-win season until the last year uh, we went out and signed two free agents, Moses Malone and Reggie Theus, and traded away, didn't re-sign Tree Rollins, traded away Randy Whitman and a, and one of our better subs named Scott Hastings, and uh, uh, went out and signed Moses and Reggie, and we finished forty one and forty one. But on uh, paper, the numbers look like oh, we're in all we're adding all of this scoring and rebounding, and we're subtracting a guy that only got eight points a game, right. Randy Whitman. Yeah. And that's exactly you know, right. The and numbers <laughs> don't always translate and, to wins. Do and they? I tell people that was my first experience with what is now called analytics. <laughs> yeah, uh, right. That if you looked at it on paper, we were much better, much better, but didn't work that way. Uh, we just uh, the chemistry wasn't there. With the previous team, everybody knew that Neek was the guy, and they kind of, you know. Uh, deferred to him I'll say as you're our guy he's the guy that's going to get whatever 20 something shots a game and everybody else kind of fills in around him uh, when we changed the team that year it it didn't work out that way and there was just n- never really any real chemistry with that team was that a lesson for you I mean did that oh yeah was that an eye opener it was, def- it was a definite you, eye you've opener you've leaned on you know back as you look back through oh, the yeah. years oh yeah and uh, I mean that sincerely. That was, you know, what I what I later referred to as this was my first experience with, with analytics, yeah. uh, as as we look at it 
today. Analytics aren't new. That's amazing. So then you get a, you get two calls, right, about possible right. opportunities uh, with other teams after the Hawks. Yeah, we got let uh, we got let go. We lost uh, well that forty one and forty one season. What uh, Stan Kasten was our general manager. Ted Turner was our owner, and uh, uh, Stan wasn't very happy. Decided to make a a change, and uh, Mike was let go. We were all let go. And uh, uh, I'm thinking now, well, you know, what am I going to do? Go back to college, high school, you know, whatever. We're, we're, uh, we're living in Atlanta. Uh, you know, my, my daughter graduated from high school. Chris was, our son Chris was, uh, uh, I think, a sophomore at that time or junior. And, uh, and then I got a call from John Gabriel uh with the Orlando Magic about uh possibly joining the staff down there and I got a call from Richie Adubato my former high school coach who uh was the head coach of the Dallas Mavericks at that time how did that call and, with Richie go Hey, hey, Brian. Hey, 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 Brian. Hey, what do you think? Hey, what do you think? I want you to come to Dallas. Be my assistant. Okay, okay, good. All right, well, you'll see you there. Okay, bye. Talk about colorful people from New Jersey. That's what I'm saying. That's one of them. That's one of them. But, yeah, and it was hard for me to say no to Richie, but but. Having been in Atlanta those four years and played against his team and knew his team pretty well, there was a, there was a situation there uh, with uh, uh, why are the names escaping me Tarpley. right now? The player Roy Tarpley. Roy Tarpley, yeah. uh, who had two strikes against him for uh, drug violations at that time, and Sam Perkins was a free agent. And I was very honest with Richie. I said, Richie, what happens if, if Perkins leaves and Tarpley goes down with strike three, you know, with the drug thing? And, uh, and he said, well, you know, then we're going to be a different team. <laughs> and uh, and uh, the other thing that factored in was, you know, Matt Gukas was the head coach of the Magic. And I thought it would be better for me to learn – the NBA game under a guy who had played in the NBA. It would give me a different perspective than coaching under Mike Fratello in Atlanta, who, you know, we kind of came up the same way in high school and college coaches and then NBA coaches. I thought, I thought working under somebody that played in the league would have a totally different perspective. And uh, Sort of get out of the, the Jersey bubble, huh? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, uh, and I felt that was the best situation for me at the time. And and uh, and uh, John Gabriel and Maddie, uh, you know, were uh, were great as far as uh, the situation. Then uh, actually, if Jeff will remember, I was I was really the only full time assistant when I came. Gabe was listed as an assistant coach, but was really more of a personnel guy. And uh, so, really, at that time. You know, I did all 82 preparations for every game and, and uh, you know, the walkthroughs and all those different things. And then, uh, you know, the next year we hired uh, uh, George Schultz, a local college coach, to be, uh, to be on the staff. But he was gone primarily most of the time with advanced scouting. 
And, uh, and that's what I did my first two years in Atlanta. I was the advanced scout and responsible for the draft, uh, believe it or not, uh, because we only had the basketball operations staff when I came to the Atlanta Hawks was the general manager, the head coach, three assistant coaches, and our our, uh, our PR guy. Pretty close to the way it is today. Yeah, pretty, pretty, pretty close to the way it is Very today. Similar. And uh, both use basketballs as the primary <laughs> tool. That's it. Uh, That's all you got. Yeah. So my job was, you know, all the advanced scouting, and then I had to combine. And at that time, there were six rounds in the draft. And uh, so my, uh, I was given, you know, here's you your never rule. Never understood because there's only, you know, so, so many, many spots, jobs, yeah. but six rounds. Yeah. But that's the way it was. Yeah. And uh, he said, here's your job. You've got to know the top 50 players uh, in the draft. Uh, that's your responsibility. And there was a guy by the name of Marty Blake at that time who was based out of Atlanta who ran a, you know, a scouting service. And you kind of went on his, uh, you know, what his recommendations were and his draft orders. And you made sure that you went around and saw, you know, as many of those guys as you could and evaluate them that's and really I, write up there, reports. That's one guy that pretty much – dominated what perceptions were about players at that time Blake yeah at that time that was he was the premier uh premier scout if you want to call it that draft guru that uh based in Atlanta Georgia who uh you know who pretty much ranked every college player there was many as he could find across the country and uh is it that different now though i mean the, well, there, there are one lists. guy but there's I not one guy one, but maybe now there are what two or three that everybody leans on that's the you know mock drafts it's still well there's a lot of mock oh, there's drafts. a lot of sites and a, there's lot, a lot of, of sites yeah. i mean this but was aren't there one marty or two blake was the guy depends on i don't know i would think i would yeah. think yeah. It's more than the others right yeah. but but not the way it was there. No, no, if, if there like is, that. if there is, I don't know who they are. Yeah, yeah, right. I'm trying to think. Of I who mean, the, it's who, all who the within the are. within each individual team now that yeah. you just rely on, you know, your uh, your scouts that are out there evaluating. If, if there is or are two or three guys like that, I'm I'm not aware of who they would be. Well, it's because I, the reason the only reason I say that is it seems like every year as you you know we prepare for the draft, we're going to do a you know radio TV show. You pull up the mock drafts and everything, and they're not that far apart. Right. And it follows pretty darn close. Yeah, right. So I, I feel yeah, like Marty there is Blake some... was pretty accurate too, as I recall. Didn't he yeah. get it right most yeah. of the time? Yeah, it was, it was very good. He was very yeah. good at what he very did. Very good. Yeah. And he had, you know, he yeah. had a lot of uh, coaches that were out evaluating, sure. you know, yeah. for him, and a, a lot of uh, a lot of college coaches, a lot of guys that were retired college coaches or were out of work or whatever that, uh, you know, were were very good coaches that went out and evaluated personnel for him. Well, the move pays off and you become the head coach of the Orlando Magic. I mean, years removed from high school, college, and your first break in the NBA, and now, now you're a head coach of an NBA team. It just had to have been an unbelievable moment for you to, to be able to get that job and and, uh, you know, the, the years that would ensue after that. But just take us through the decision to come to Orlando, and then ultimately it pays off. You end up becoming a head coach. Yeah, well, I made, as, as I said, I thought working for Maddie would be a, a good experience for me, him being a former NBA player. And I also, the fact that uh, 
I was responsible. I had all the responsibility that I did have as the only assistant. And, and he kind of said, you know, you can handle the defense. Uh, you know, you're, you're doing all the preparation and everything. You can handle the defense. Uh, and it gave me an opportunity to uh, much more than what I had uh, other than my last uh, year in Atlanta. Uh, it was the most responsibility that I had. So it helped me a lot. But I, had, I you know, was going into my fifth year as an assistant coach in the NBA. So I felt by that time, you know, I had a, a pretty good grasp of what the league was all about. And, and uh, I had worked for Mike, who was an excellent teacher and coach. And um, so that, you know, the three years under Matty was really, was really good for me. I mean, it gave me a lot of responsibility. And, and uh, you know, quite honestly, I was surprised when, uh, you know, when the whole opportunity was there where uh, management came and said that, you know, Matty was going to move up to the front office and um, would, I, would I take over the team. And uh, I was kind of shocked by it, but uh, obviously it was, you know, it was an incredible opportunity. I, I can picture it. Yeah, I, I know exactly <laughs> what happened. He went home and he, okay, you're not going to believe this. They just gave me the opportunity to coach the Magic, and I'm going to have Jeff Turner for another four years. <laughs> <laughs> that was a sealer. That's exactly what I, How did you know that? <laughs> Icing on the cake. Four more years. Oh, oh and Shaquille O'Neal might, oh, yeah. might, well, might, yeah, might be a guy true. that uh, you coach. And Penny Hardaway. Yeah. No, well, it guys. was, you know, obviously, you know, I, I was very fortunate to, to – inherit a team that was uh, with, with Shaq just coming out of his, his rookie year and, the, you know, the other players, all the other players that we had that we knew, you know, you're going to win some games. You don't know how many, but uh, a lot of guys that get their first opportunity to coach in the NBA, usually you get a bad team. You know, that's right. why the job opens up. And uh, if you're an assistant coach getting your first opportunity, it's usually not with a very good team. Uh, but uh, no, I was in incredibly fortunate to to inherit the team that we had, and then you know after uh, you know right right before that, you know, we also get Penny Hardaway in the draft. Yeah, you know right before uh, I actually uh, got the job. So did you know? Did you feel have a strong feeling that getting Penny Hardaway and putting him alongside Shaq was going to be something special? Well, I definitely agreed with John Gabriel. With uh, John Gabriel was the driving force behind Penny Hardaway. Yeah, uh, that decision. There was no question about that. I'm not. I'm not sure uh, how everybody in the organization felt about that at that time, but uh, Gabe was definitely the driving force behind that. And when we brought him in a second time and uh, worked out five on five at the local uh, North Park Baptist North Church. North Park Baptist Church there. You part of that, JT? Oh, yeah. yeah. So you yeah. saw it too. Well, yeah. it was different back then because the existing players, we could we could right. go in and be a part of the workouts. Yeah, well, so. technically you couldn't. Well, <laughs> we were Whoops. breaking the rules, well. but, but it didn't matter at yeah. that time. Adam Silver's <laughs> online too. <laughs> that was a long time ago. Pre-ditch yeah. Twitter and all that. So they, right. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it was. Well, maybe just I could because I was there. Yeah, you know. were. You live locally, so <laughs> yeah. you, you were allowed to. Yeah, we couldn't bring anybody in from out of town. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the way. Uh, that's that's what, what it was. was. But uh, 
Yeah, that was, you know, you kind of looked at it as almost like the Magic and Kareem uh, combination, you know, of of how to get how to get to the next level, you know, uh, uh, a guy that could be, uh, uh, you, we felt, you know, a, a great point guard and you already had a great center. And, uh, you know, the, the other choice there was Chris Webber. But if you really think about it, you know, Chris Webber and Shaquille, nobody knows whether it ever would have worked yeah, or not. Right. But that's two guys that, you know, would command the, the low post area on the same team. This was before, you know, Webber expanded his game after, uh, you know, four or five years in the league and was able to play outside a little bit more and everything. He was, you know, primarily a, a, a low block or post-up player. So you don't know whether it would have worked or not. But uh, um, I think uh, adding Penny was definitely, uh, I, I think, the right move. And Gabe was adamant about it. And, and then Pat Williams pulled off. You know, an incredible one of the deal. great trades of all time. Yeah, he got multiple picks, switched uh, Weber for Penny, and you know, four picks, right? Yeah, right. one of them turned out to be Mike, Mike Miller. Miller later on, yeah, many many right. years later. Yeah, that was a great trade. But I yeah. always think, obviously, Shaq's as as dominant a player as this game has ever seen. I would think, as an outsider, a guy like that could be challenging at times to coach. You loved coaching Shaq. You had a great relation. You guys had to. You you he, you had really got through with him, didn't you? I I never I never. <clears throat> Shaq was a guy, and I I've heard other coaches that have coached him, talk about him. Okay. And I I don't hear the same things from when he was in Orlando, but that was the beginning of his career. You know, he was a young guy. Mm-hmm. I think the thing about Shaq was because of the way that he was raised. I think he always. Uh, there was a certain respect factor there that he had uh, for people. Right. Uh, and uh, I don't ever remember really having any issues with him there, because you could say to Shaquille O'Neal, here's what, you're, here's what you're not doing or here's what you need to get better at, and he would, he would work at it. Or you could say in a timeout, you know, you got – you know, you're not rebounding the basketball or, you know, whatever. And, and he would just kind of shake his head and then would go out and, like, get the next ten rebounds in the game. <laughs> you know, he was he just had that type of mentality, you know. Um, so I never had any any issues with Shaquille that I knew of. You know, maybe, yeah, right. <laughs> maybe inside the locker room, he, yeah. you know, might have been different. But uh, uh, to me, he was he was easy to coach. Now, I know coaches later on in his career – Right, you know, felt a little differently about it, mm-hmm. but he had accomplished a lot more, and, and uh, who knows? Unless you're coaching somebody, you right. really don't know what they're like. Uh, but no, uh, Shaquille was never an issue, and and his dad, uh, his dad and I were kind of contemporaries. We grew up in the same area. He was from Newark. That's I was right. from East Orange. There's a Northeast again, David. Yep, another <laughs> rising character, to the top, character. and uh, <laughs> and. Um, so there was kind of a, a little connection there also. I don't, I don't think Brian gets enough credit for, and, and we've talked about this, uh, for the, the use of the three-point line. You know, back in, in especially 94, 95, when we you know, were, were moving to the NBA Finals, um, 
we we utilized it. We spread the floor around Shaquille. Now we didn't put up as many maybe right. as other teams, but when you have Shaquille O'Neal, you don't mm-hmm. put up as many three pointers. Right. They come off of double teams, right. and I just thought I, I just don't. David, I don't, you've watched a lot of basketball. I just don't think Brian gets enough credit for really spreading the floor in an age when it was still a power game. So. Yeah, I remember uh, there were so many nights, Brian, uh, Jeff, when the team was just so dominant against opposing teams. Uh, there must have been, I don't know how many, multiple, multiple times it, we would win by 20, 30 points. Shaq was just so dominant. But when Shaq was not, you know, when teams double teamed him or when you know, he saw the opportunity. He was willing to kick mm-hmm. the ball out. He got better and better at that. He wasn't very good his first year, but he, by 1994-95, yeah. he was really good at finding the open guy. And, and then we he, had great shooters. I mean, yeah. it was a well-built roster around him. Yeah, and even when he was off the floor, I think, you know, the, the using Penny in the post right. the way Brian did as well. Again, I mean, I just uh, well, I, I just really, want to go on record on this podcast and say yeah. Brian, you know – you need to look at those, you know, those magic teams back then because I think, you know, he set it up for us to be successful and utilize the space that not only the shooters but Shaquille, you know, gave us. I've always um, felt like Brian didn't never got enough credit for the job overall that he did getting that team to the NBA finals because it was such a young team. You know, a lot of times you forget how young Penny was and how young Shaq was, Dennis and Nick. You were one of the older players on the roster, Jeff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's very rare. I mean, you don't see teams with players in their early to mid-20s making it to the NBA Finals. You, you know, almost never. I can't think of maybe a that might have been one of the youngest NBA Finals teams in a long, long time. But, uh, I mean, you got them there, Brian. And we're, we're recording this in, in a hotel room in Houston, which is kind of ironic. Yeah, that's right. That's <laughs> true. This is where I things, didn't even think yeah, about that. This is where the whole thing. That. And you're you know, talking about him like he passed away. He's right here. If my voice sounds, you know, if I'm not showing a lot of, a lot of uh, animation in my voice or everything, it's because we're in Houston. <laughs> and I don't have very fond memories of this city. So. Yeah, this place stinks. <laughs> I don't like this But place. that Shaq, that must have factored into your personnel decisions and all the playing time and all that, you know, put spreading the floor like that. That That is a very interesting point. Oh, yeah, and, and when Jeff uh, just alluded to, we had Penny, too, who mm-hmm. was yep. a mismatch for every point guard in the NBA at that time. And and uh, a lot of – if he was guarded by a point guard, we were sending him right to the post at that time because he's another guy that got double teamed every time he – he went into the post and created scoring opportunities for for other guys. And, of course, he was a great passer out of those double teams. Um, but what a lot of teams did was put their small forward on Penny and then put their point guard on Dennis Scott uh, because they felt Dennis wasn't well, going go, to go outside 25, or inside 25 feet. Yeah. <laughs> Dennis was a pretty good post-up but player, then you could too. But yeah. then you put Dennis in the post yeah. with a point guard on him and, and you know, Dennis had that big body, and he could go down in there, and had he had a game down he there. Did. Jeff he remembers he had a little, yeah. you know, little dream shake and a little baby <laughs> hook, and uh, uh, you know, so you just worked around, you know, the personnel you had on the floor, really. It's the 25th anniversary of that run to the finals, yeah, which is unbelievable. But that, how much, how dominant did you guys just feel that whole year? I mean, that that predates me. I didn't come until. 1998, but obviously it's got to be you know a, a terrific memory for you, going all the way to an NBA Finals. Well, it's 
it was a great memory until the finals actually <laughs> well, right. actually sure. came around. But no, I, I still look back on it obviously, and and you know very proud of of what we accomplished. Uh, you know, but I had a really good coaching staff, and I had a really good team. Um, you know, I'm, and I'm the first one to admit that. Um, I don't I don't know. I don't know that as a coach you ever feel like you're that dominant as a team. You're always worried about the next game, regardless of who it's against. And, and when you are rolling like that, maybe Jeff will feel differently. I always worried more about the bad teams. If we were playing a bad team, uh, because we were so young, as David said, that guys didn't, didn't take those games maybe as seriously as if we were playing – you know, the, the Celtics or the Knicks or, you know, the teams that were, you know, that were good at that time. Uh, as a coach, those teams concerned me more going into the game than, than uh, you know, going against the Indiana Pacers and the Chicago Bulls and, you know, the good teams of, of, uh, of those years. You know what's interesting? I, we were thinking about it. Um, the second-round the second series was Chicago, and um, – one guy makes one play late in game one, you know, Nick Anderson. It looks like Chicago's going to win game one, and if Michael Jordan and the Bulls win game one, what are your thoughts? They, 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 they may have been really tough to beat, and Orlando was such a young and fragile team. If you lose game one to Chicago in the second round because you just barely gotten by Boston in right. round one. Right. And you think about those things, and then, then later in the finals, Nick's the guy that misses free throws – and so in, in, the, in, the, in the second round against Chicago, he makes a play that if he doesn't make that play, you may not beat Chicago in the second round. And then in the finals, you know, everybody now looks right. back and says, if, if Nick makes one free throw, that might have turned the whole series around in the NBA finals. That's how fragile yeah. that team was. Yeah, and you, ne- you never know. I mean, you know, we had, lost, we had lost to the Indiana Pacers in the uh, playoffs the year before. And uh, – I thought when we won the Boston series that it kind of like like the weight of the world kind of was off our shoulders, and it was like okay we won we won a playoff series you know we finally won a playoff series, and I thought we played a lot looser from that point on. I thought the the, the two games in Boston that we ended up winning to win the series, I thought we played really tight in those games, um, but then when we won that series, I thought. Everybody kind of exhaled, you know, myself and the coaching staff <laughs> included, that we, you know, got through a playoff series. And, you know, as Jeff will tell you, the playoffs are – that's a different animal than the regular season. And you have to go through it to experience it. And uh, uh, <clears throat> so I thought we played a lot looser. And then, uh, obviously, you know, when uh, when we ended up, you know, with uh, Nick Steele and, and Penny delivering to Horace – for the winner against that uh, uh, Chicago team in game one. Uh, I think we played with even more confidence at that time because then even though we lost game two at home, then we turned right around and went to Chicago and won the next game and uh, and closed out the series there in game six. So I, I thought the confidence of the team just from, from Boston on just kept going like that at that time. Isn't it funny, though, that like oh, you said that you know, it was a struggle in the first round, and that was the hardest one to get through a little bit, and then you got looser. That's kind of how the 9 run was, too, when you look at it. Like, the, the team Philly kind of struggled with Philly, you know, back and forth in close games. 
And then they picked up confidence and like almost got that monkey off their back. Like, okay, we won a series. Now we can just play more free. It's very, very similar. Except when we, except in '09 when they got to the finals, I think they were just shell shocked by the whole glitz and glamour of the finals. Where I didn't feel that way about the '95 team. I felt the '95 team. You know, I mean, you got out to that big lead in the first game. That's not the way game one went in 09. It was yeah. a little different. It's the opposite. Yeah. yeah. Well, you got to remember, in, in uh, playing in the old arena, Yeah. I don't think Jeff can answer this better than me, but I, I just felt like our guys thought, like, nobody can beat nobody, us yeah. when we're playing at home. Uh, and we won 40 in a row, you know, over a – one year span, <laughs> spanning two seasons, you know. Uh, and exactly we, right. Yeah, we lost. Yeah. We two lost games, six games right? in two years. Yeah, and, and won yeah. most of them by, a like lot. I said earlier, just blew people yeah. out. I had fans saying, "You know, it's, not, it's just not very much. It's just boring. It ain't <laughs> right. boring." Yeah, <laughs> you know, come on. You're being, we're being just throw it at him. Yeah, he dominates, and you win by thirty. And, <laughs> What's okay, the what's the, the fun in that? What's the fun in that? <laughs> let's try but, to keep it closer. Yeah. <laughs> but who else? Uh, Chicago in their run, I think they won forty one or was, two. I think it was one or two more than we in did. a row at home, and nobody else has even come no, close no, to that. No, you know, no. in the NBA since then. And but our arena was an incredible place to play. At that time, I mean, every game was a sellout, and you know, and and that building, the way it was configured, you know, the seats kind of, you know, went up, and they, it was like they were right on top of you, and uh, it was just a heck of a home court advantage. You know, those games, as dominant as you guys were, everybody that played for you and after has talked about those practices. <laughs> those practices, you guys would get after it in practice, and the the way the game has changed, you don't have time to do that pra those practices you can't practice you can't have all that contact everything has been so limited now i mean what a it'd be different it'd be difficult to do now wouldn't it i mean the last time you were on the sideline was what 2013 would, right. would, it, would it be tough the way practices are designed now to do that is there still as much teaching happening and your guys aren't hitting each other the contact has stopped when I left my last year in 2013, I was working for Lawrence Frank, who's now the president of basketball operations for the Clippers, and was the head coach of the Pistons. We practiced the same way in 2013 that we did uh, in 1995. Okay. Uh, now that was only seven years ago. Mm -hmm. So I, I just don't believe that there's that big of a change all of a sudden other than the youth coming into the league mm -hmm. over those seven years, more, you know, one-and-done guys and younger guys coming in. Um, there are fewer back-to-backs today. Um, so I guess I could be a crotchety old coach and say, I don't understand why you can't practice like that. Mm -hmm. um, now, the, the staffs are so much bigger now than they ever were. And I don't just mean the coaching staffs, but yeah, you know your, your 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 entire basketball operations, your training staff, your your strength and conditioning staff, um, and there's just a lot of there's a lot of different uh, feelings out there now about uh, 
how many minutes you should be playing and how much how much you can practice and those things just weren't around when Jeff was playing and when I was coaching it was just mm-hmm. like you you were always you know you were always mindful of uh, you know, if we came off a of back-to-back, we didn't practice the next sure, day. Sure, sure. But uh, if if you played a game on a on a Wednesday night and you had another game on Friday, you came in and you had a, an hour and a half practice, and you would regulate the contact in that practice. But you still always did at least you know four-on-four shell work or a little bit of five-on-five full court work. Um, you know, you, you were always mindful of how much contact there was, especially as the season went on and you got later into the season. And then the, the practice time would generally be reduced as, you know, the further you went along. But for people to say that you can't do that today, I'm, I'm not sure that I, uh, I necessarily agree with that. I think the last thing we'll ask and we'll end on this, uh, you know, the coaching profession I mean, I, to be a head coach, you get, there's so much moving around. There's so much that goes into it, a number of different stops. What is what is it about NBA coaches that that you love the job? What's the most rewarding part of it? Because you got it's so much sacrifice for an NBA head coach, for the family. What What is the most rewarding part of this for you? I think <clears throat> I think I'd probably just answer that by saying, you know, no, no matter what profession you're in, whether you're a teacher, whether uh, you know you're uh, a radio, TV personality, mm-hmm. whether you're uh, in in uh, public relations, doesn't everybody aspire to try to get to the top of their profession? Mm-hmm. Uh, some people do. Some people have the opportunity to do it and choose not to because of a they want to maintain a certain lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Um, other people have the opportunity and take advantage of it because they want to try to get to that level. So I, th- I think, you know, a- after, you know, a number of years of being in the profession and then, and then uh, you're, you're always, what would it be like to coach the best players in the world? Yeah, sure. You know, that's kind of the motivation of, uh, uh, okay, you coached high school players, you coach college players. What would it be like now to coach NBA players? Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's the motivation is, you know, can you, can you go to the highest uh, level and still coach guys, teach guys, uh, and, and be successful? And, uh, and it's kind of a test, you know, of, of, uh, of your abilities. And uh, I guess it was just part of my upbringing was that was always the, the way I always kind of looked at things of – uh, okay, I want I want to judge myself against the best. Whether yeah. it's as a, as a kid playing baseball and, and basketball in, in high school or, or you know whatever it was, um, if the opportunity presents itself, uh, go for it. Now, obviously, a lot of conversations in there with your 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 wife, your family, sure. and everything else. But and I think that's one of the great things about my wife Kay was you know having been an athlete. She totally understood, you know, my my motivation and and uh, everything else. And the hard thing was uh, is really your children, you know, is yeah. uh, is moving your children. And we only really had one hard move the the whole time, and that was when my daughter when I when I left to come to the NBA. My daughter Kim was a, had just finished her sophomore year of high school in State College, Pennsylvania, 
and we had lived in Pennsylvania for 12 years now. And then we were going to Atlanta, Georgia. And I, I can say honestly uh, into this microphone, my daughter did not like going to high school in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, and she wasn't real happy about it. Uh, but she was, you know, never complained or anything else. And, and uh, for my son, you know, he was just starting high school at that time and was able to go uh, all four years there. But uh, that was the only hard move was, was going from, uh, from Penn State to the, to the Hawks was moving to Atlanta. And uh, all of a sudden you have a, you know, a girl that's lived in the Northeast her whole yeah, life sure. that doesn't speak with a Southern accent. <laughs> and, you know, uh, and she wasn't, um, uh, you know, for medical issues, wasn't involved in team sports or cheerleading or things like that where you can walk into like an instant family. Yeah, right. You know, when you go to high school, you have, you know, you have a group that you're already a part of. She was just Kim Hill you know, and going to Lasseter High School in Georgia and didn't know a person in the world. And so the move, that one move was the hardest one we, we ever made. And then once I got to the NBA, then we, uh, or to Orlando, then that was home because uh, our son Chris was in college, Kim was in college. And, and uh, so that decision was made, even though Kay and I bounced around, was Orlando's home. Uh, so the kids were there, you know, that they've been in Florida now since 1990 and still are. And I, I can't see either one of them going anywhere else. Well, before we close it out, now you're, you know, you're, you're a hotshot broadcaster. Fox Sports 4. You work with Dante Marcatelli. <laughs> the so, Italian Stallion. So what, what is that like for you? After all these years being in the, you know, in the battle and, you know, all the wars, the, the NBA battles that you've been through, college, high school as a coach, and now you're you're sitting you know sitting with a microphone and you're on TV you're, you're doing podcasts who knows what all else you're into but uh, no seriously what a big change life that's is been good for you. How, do, how do you like this this business I didn't even know what a podcast was until <laughs> last week <laughs> uh, I I love it uh, for a couple of reasons number one I get to work with all you guys which is uh, which is great number two. Uh, when the game is over, the only thing I worry about is what glass of wine I'm going to drink <laughs> instead, instead of whether we won or lost the game. And, uh, and number three, it keeps me involved in the, in the game, which uh, that's probably at 72 years of age now, that's probably my biggest concern is if I ever stop working, what will I do? Um, I don't know that I'm wired that way to just – you know, wake up in the morning and, and not have somewhere to go, something to do. You know, you can go to the gym and you can play golf and you can do all those things. But uh, then an, another sense of purpose beyond your family. Um, so to me, it, it's, uh, it's fantastic for that reason because it keeps me involved in the game. It keeps me involved in an organization that I, that I really respect and, and uh, am grateful to. Uh, for the opportunity that uh, was given to me and it just uh, it's like it's like staying in coaching but without the pressure of coaching you know and and uh, and again and seriously I get to work with you know David Jeff Dante George uh, and a lot of other great people and and it's uh, you know I love I love doing it right now uh, you know I've I've 
since I left Detroit, I've had opportunities to coach um, and said no. Uh, and the, the biggest reason was because of, um, you know, my wife Kay's health situation. That's why I, I left in 2013. She was diagnosed with breast cancer, but she's absolutely 100% healthy now. Uh, but that's that's why I stopped coaching. Otherwise, who knows? I might still be on somebody's bench yeah. today as, I bet you would, as an assistant yeah. coach. Yeah. But once I made that decision, it was it was done. It's like just health is the main thing now, and uh, and fortunately, the you know the magic afforded me the opportunity. Literally, you know, weeks after I left uh, the Pistons, you know, would I be interested in in doing the uh, you know, these shows, the pregame, halftime, and postgame, and it's like, yeah, love to. So uh, I'm very thankful to, to the organization, and uh, like I said, it's great. You know, you, you get to watch, you know, a, a full season of NBA basketball and, and be involved in a small way, uh, but without any of the pressure that goes <laughs> along with it. Well, it's a blast for us. I yeah, know we is. have a blast. I learned so much, and I have a blast. We we have a lot of laughs, and I've learned a lot about wine over the last couple of years too, which is great. And I am not uh, having any wine tonight, by the way, <laughs> just for the record. No and wine. See, you could learn tonight. a lot here, yeah. George, because George quit working twelve years ago. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's true. I often think about what am I going to do too. Yeah. I'm I also wondering if Brian's ever done a podcast uh, that's hosted by a guy with no shoes on. <laughs> Or the other guy on the bed. <laughs> one on the bed, one with no shoes. Well, I was a little leery when I walked in here, you know, and saw, saw that king-sized bed. And, uh, and uh, what so, kind of a some show? Some guys, David, David going, hello, one greetings. One guy scantily clothed. Uh, so I was a little bit leery Shredding. when I first Shredding. came in. Jeff came from the gym. Yeah. Uh, we got no video of this. Think, one. The pod squad is the best. The pod squad is the best. All right, Brian, we appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun and uh we'll get back at it again here we'll do another podcast here in a couple days <laughs> <laughs> look forward to it thanks guys appreciate thanks, it